Hello, everybody, and welcome to a Cane and Rinse extra podcast for you. An interview with returning guest, author, how is it he describes himself? Two-time, almost award-winning author. <laughs> I'm up to four now. Oh, I just, oh you need to I just keep going higher. Just when I think I've taught myself, I should update my bio. Yeah. All the nominations. Uh, David L. Craddock is back on Cane and Rinse. Yes, and thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. Always a pleasure. Which must mean you've been working, as always, on a new book. This is your number, I don't know. If you've had four nominations, you've got five pictured in your on your Twitter header there. I'm going to say this is your seventh book. Um, it's over 20 at this point. I couldn't fit them all. I couldn't <laughs> I fit close. them all in, in the head. You were. I couldn't fit them all in the header <laughs> image. So I had to pick and choose between my book right. babies. Yeah. 20 books that is that is some going and uh we've had i think this is your third or fourth or maybe yeah fourth visit to I the show so. i think so yeah but yes it's been a while since uh, august 2019 i think we failed to get around to speaking to you for the last book apologies for that but oh, uh, it's, no everything's problem. been everything's been crazy yeah uh, as, it, it, in know. some ways it's been a year since uh, august 2019 <laughs> in some ways it's been 10 years since august yes. 2019 <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's taken its toll. But here we are. Everything's fine. Everything's normal. And yes. I'm very excited about this when I got your email, because uh, obviously all the stuff that you've covered, uh, at least in the seven books that I know about, I'm not <laughs> sure about the other 13, uh, has been stuff that I'm interested in because it's, you know, video game related. But this one, more than any so far, particularly piqued my interest because it's all about Julian Gollop and XCOM. UFO defense or uh, uh, enemy unknown, depending. Um, so I guess my first question is what brought you to that subject? Sure. Oh, this is kind of a fun one for me. Um, one of the aspects of my job as a full-time writer and author I enjoy the most is getting introduced to a game by researching another game. Um, when I wrote Today Well and Listen, I found out from... Um, Blizzard North uh, co-founders David Brevik and Eric Schaefer and Max Schaefer that all three, but especially Dave and Eric, were huge fans of F XCOM. And yeah. in fact, they said that they uh, they kind of uh, reverse engineered XCOM and gutted it to get a prototype of Diablo running because they want to do the same thing. You know, Dave Brevik in college uh, discovered roguelikes and became hooked on them. So he wanted to create a roguelike game. And then when he and Eric got... Um, obsessed with XCOM, they said, you know, the atmosphere in this is so great. We love the lighting. We love the tension. We want to transfer that into a graphical turn-based roguelike game. And um, I thought, you know, since XCOM had such a strong impact on Diablo, and I remember reading a lot about it, especially in, in issues like Computer Gaming World, PC Gamer, but I never played it. And so I thought, I wonder if I should reach out to Julian Gollop uh -huh. to see if he knew uh, how much his game had impact, impacted developers in completely different genres, and ask if he wanted to read the book. And he said he'd be delighted. He really liked uh, Stay Well and Listen. He wrote a glowing endorsement, which I still like to tout to this day. Sure. And then after he wrote it, I said, you know, Julian, um, I've, been, I've been playing around with XCOM. Um, I really like it. I, I can, you know, even though the game at that point was about 19 years old, I think, uh, yeah. I said, I think it still holds up really well. Would yes. you be uh, up for me interviewing you and writing your story? And he said, absolutely, because, again, he was so impressed with Stay Well and Listen. And so we we dug in from there. And and the funny the funny thing is um, we completed our interviews in 2014, and I'm just now 
I just last summer being inside with not much to do. I, I'm always writing anyway, but mm. um, over seven weeks in July, I wrote the first draft of this book, which is called Monsters in the Dark. And it was some of the most fun I've had writing. Like the book just came together almost like magic. It was so much fun. Oh, that is so pleasant when the writing just falls out rather than <laughs> you have to prize it out with spoons and, and exactly. forks and goodness knows what. Yeah. Yeah. So my uh, history with XCOM is that I played the original on the Amiga back in the day, Amiga 500 in about 1994, and the game ran so slowly on a <laughs> on a base Amiga 500. You would be waiting, you could be waiting literally sort of 20 minutes, half an hour or more for the enemy turn to work itself out. And then when you actually got control of your little dudes, the frame rate was just extraordinarily slow. Everything was creaking. <laughs> it was, you know, caught into a pint pot stuff, which we talked about before when we were talking about arcade conversions. But this was a obviously a game that was very happy running on nice, shiny new PCs of the time. Now it runs comically well on modern PCs. If you buy it on Steam, the Globe, the Geoscape that yeah. used to refresh once every couple of seconds on my Amiga, <laughs> now you can spin it at a million miles an hour. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and then we covered uh, XCOM on uh, on the Kane and Rince podcast some years ago, but that was the reboot. We talked a little about the original. What happened was because I got so frustrated with the Amiga version, I never got to, to, to the latter stages of it. But the game came out on the PlayStation, the PS1, and I think that's where a lot of people uh, discovered it. And it was just fantastic for me because it really the the extra 32-bit processing power just smoothed over all those problems that the Amiga version had. It was a pretty decent, uh, it worked pretty well on the PS1 controller. Um, but tragically, uh, I had this device, which was a, uh, it was a uh, like a floppy disk drive that plugged into your PS1 mm -hmm. and it made each floppy disk a memory card. So fantastic idea because floppy disks cost like a pound yeah, and PS1 great. memory cards cost like 15 pounds. So that was <laughs> the thing. I thought this is a good economy. It cost about 100 quid for the disk drive, but the disk corrupted. I was just about to launch my assault on the enemy base, oh, the alien no. planet. Uh, dozens and dozens of hours. I've been, I've been manufacturing laser pistols because I, I had the guidebook. I had the strategy guide, which is something I, I seldom do. And I was so obsessed with the game. I was taking the strategy guide into work and pouring over it. And I worked out that man manufacturing laser pistols was the best way to make money, uh, and all this stuff. And then I lost my save game. So, uh, I never quite beat it, but I still have enormously fond memories of, of everything about it. I was too scared of Terror from the Deep because everyone just said, yeah, it's basically a reskin, but it's harder. <laughs> yeah, that and, you know, a lot of people have phobias of, of deep space. And I guess yeah. I kind of get where that's coming from because it's so awesome, so awe-inspiring. For me, uh, I love the ocean, but the deeper we go, the darker it gets, the more I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I can handle this. And t that's terror from the deep <laughs> in a nutshell deep for me. And yeah. Deep space. Yeah. 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 There was a thing I remember reading this years ago, and I think we talked about it on a XCOM Firaxis podcast. Mm -hmm. There was a bug in the code, which remains to this day of the original XCOM, which means that no matter what of the something, is it five or seven difficulty settings you choose, it's always on the hardest one. So even if you pick 
six, it's uh, even if you pick one, it's seven or whatever, uh, which explains a lot of pain. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, certainly, certainly. And that uh, also adds to the game's mystique, particularly because, you know, back then, yes, it came with a, a nice sized manual, whereas yeah. today they're like two pages if you get one at all. Just but, telling you not to electrocute yourself. Yeah, you? exactly. Like, don't be dumb, you know, <laughs> otherwise mm. have fun. Um, but the, a lot of the game was so ob obscure and opaque that you had to figure a lot of things yeah. out. And that yeah. just kind of added to the what the hell is going on sort of aura that almost like was picked up, a, a torch that was picked up by Demon Souls some years later. I yeah. Think. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you got a quote in your book from Alec Mir, former editor of Rock Paper Shotgun, that I think sums up the appeal nicely. It says, XCOM... Uh, that that's the one with the hyphen as it was originally uh is xcom is a game from another universe it is the nexus of gaming strategy action action role-playing management horror storytelling chess familiar sci-fi tropes rendered with colorful glee yet creeping menace your people are dying there are monsters in the dark and uh, that's the title of the book but for all those influences uh, it took a while to get there uh, from Julian's origins uh, as a coder, which, and he himself was one of those, uh, I guess, quite a few 8-bit pioneers who were, understandably, their 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 previous gaming ludological experiences had been board games, and he had a particular affection for Escape from Colditz. Yes, and that's how I decided to kind of write the first chapter of the book. I wanted it to be the background on that game and his experience with it, because that's part of what he came to love about XCOM and, and why XCOM appealed to so many. There wasn't much in in terms of a, a, a story beyond the setting and the premise. And from there, you kind of made up your own story. You inhabited these characters. And Julian just got really swept up in Escape from Colditz, and so I wanted to uh, immerse readers in that uh, right away. And that's actually uh, the crux of Monsters in the Dark. Um, I thought, you know, as, as fun as XCOM is, I want to write about Julian's career because it's not like that was his first game. You know, even with Stay Wild and Listen, Diablo was a lot of those developers' first game, but Julian learned so much through games like yeah. Rebel Star Raiders, Laser Squad, Lords of Chaos, that I thought, we, you know, I want to I wanna show a step-by-step -step progression here to what many still consider, and I think Julian himself considers the best game he's made yet. Mm. One of the things I enjoyed uh, reading about was his uh, his modding of chess. One of the things I always used to sort of try to when I was a kid. Obviously, I'm uh, I'm nearly fifty now, and so I was one of those kids that was, according to adults of the time, wasting their time with these stupid, simple video games that people only saw as Space Invaders or, or whatever. And I was trying to say, no, look, some of them are really deep and complicated, um, and in some ways, like games. Yeah, I might have been talking to my uncle about Rebel Star or something and saying it's more complicated than chess. But one of the stories <laughs> was that uh, he, Julian, had the exact same issue with chess that I had, which is that really it's a memory, becomes a memory test more than a, a game of strategy because everyone memorizes like hundreds of different sequences and you end up playing a game that has already been played effectively because there's a limited number of parameters albeit a lot uh but by expanding the the tile set and the and the the characters and the moves and the pieces he could make something more complicated but because he was frustrated with with chess as it was he modded chess that's correct yeah you know he he was lucky enough that he and his siblings had a dad 
who was uh, an avid board game player. And so as I write about a tradition in the Gullop household was they'd go to the grandparents every Christmas and uh, every Christmas they would get at least one new board game. And so by the time Julian, you know, he wasn't quite ready to create his own own game from scratch quite yet. So he would kind of um, pilfer from different board games and pieces and, and chess was his his guinea pig. He said, what if I could switch this to this and add this move? And he would add different pieces and game cards to it. And it was uh, it was almost like, the, I think, the writer's equivalent of, uh, of fan fiction. You know, when you're cutting your teeth, it's nice to work with an established world so you don't have to make everything up. And then once you have your, your legs under you, your design legs under you, as Julian got his, uh, you can kind of move forward from there. And he was one of the pioneers of bringing kind of the what we now call 4x which i don't think i'd even actually had spelled out to me before i read your book explore expand exploit and exterminate uh into the the computer game space yeah he was and it's interesting one thing i i liked about this book was that i could write about some of the the similarities and differences between gaming in the uk and gaming in the states um mm. Turn-based strategy games on the computer weren't as popular here before Sid Meier's Civilization in 1991. Yeah. Whereas uh, over in the UK, you know, designers like Julian Gollop had had made their names on 4X games. And so yeah. uh, I really also wanted to make sure Julian got his due as a pioneer of 4X. And in turn, I actually interviewed him about interviewing him for this book. And I said, you know, what's something you want people to learn uh, that, you know, take away from this? And he's such a humble guy. He said... You know, with each project, as teams got bigger, more and more people helped, and I kind of want to make sure everyone gets their due. And so it, it's kind of a, it takes a village to raise a child and to create a genre. And that's uh, one of the underlining examples uh, and I guess themes, I, I mean, in this book. Yeah, I remember um, like Zap 64, the Commodore 64 magazine that was uh, published, produced and published over here, had its own war games section, you know, maneuvers, mm -hmm. it was called, I think. And uh, and yeah, it was it was it was its own niche for sure. To, uh, a lot of them were very dry and Byzantine and impenetrable, with massive manuals and complicated controls and key presses, and it was all way too intimidating for me as a as a, a child, yeah, basically a child. But um, it was actually the it probably Rebel Star Raiders was one of my first kind of games where. Uh, where I was actually starting to think, okay, I can, I can get this. It made it a bit more accessible and with the relatable scenario and all that kind of thing. But that wasn't Julian's first game. One thing that has kind of, it's uh, the book's opened my eyes up to is just how many uh, studio names Julian's worked under. It hadn't quite, I hadn't quite uh, uh, sort of got my head around that, but um, I think Redshift was the first one. That's correct. Yeah, uh, he, he started there. Some friends of his had started it, and they were kind of financed by a, a wargaming magazine mogul <laughs> of sorts. Mm. And um, what happened was, through no fault of his friends, he, he went from studio to studio, label to label, and kept kind of getting shafted on, on royalties. But if you, yeah, I mean, if you look at yeah. his resume, he worked for some pretty big names for the time before he decided to uh, strike out on his own with some of his family members and found Mythos. Yeah, there was a game by Redshift. I didn't know it was by Redshift, but I had I I thought my first uh, Julian Gollop game was Rebel Star, but uh, it was actually I did play Tripods on a friend's um, on a friend's Spectrum at the time, which was a a sort of graphic adventure tie-in to a 
BBC TV series of a YA sci-fi novel. Um, <laughs> and it was a tremendous, it was, uh, BBC were pushing this series so hard um, and they spent quite a lot of money on it. But obviously, if you looked at it now, you'd think the effects were absolutely terrible, but it was quite boring. It was disappointingly <laughs> dull. Um, and yeah, this was the era of vintage uh, BBC sci-fi, Blake Seven and Doctor Who and stuff like that. So tripods, I remember being a bit disappointing, but my friend was in it, uh, into it, sorry, and um, <laughs> and and got got the uh, got the computer game. Uh, he he had a, a big box of Spectrum pirate games, as you do, just tapes and tapes and tapes. But he actually had the original tripods. I think uh, I think the picture of the 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 titular tripod on the cover must have tempted him. I'm not sure how much Julian <laughs> Gollop had to do with that that actual game, but I know he was a, he was at Redshift at the time it was being produced. Certainly, he he was. And one of the interesting aspects of his story is that for the most part, uh, as part of these different companies, he worked remotely. You know, Redshift was just kind of um, uh, as part of a magazine shop, but Julian would work from his own apartment or uh, sometimes his his dorm room when he attended university. And he would drop in occasionally to show the guys at Redshift what he was working on and get feedback. But for the most part, it's almost like today where remote work, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, the, the working remotely was becoming a more and more commonplace, especially in industries where you can kind of rely on asynchronous feedback rather than needing to get it you know, yesterday right away. So I suppose I think of Rebel Star Raiders, which I completely missed at the time because I had an Atari 8-bit and uh, this was a primarily a Spectrum game. Uh, this was influenced by the board game Sniper, which I have heard of, but uh, I've never played, uh, which featured, as you'd expect from the title, ranged combat and action points. And uh, and I suppose, you, yeah, Rebel Star Raiders, maybe you would call kind of XCOM Zero in a way. Yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. Um, and and Julian would agree. He said that he felt like the XCOM template or formula, if you will, really traced back to that game because that's where he started kind of lining up the pieces and parts he would use to make XCOM later on. And it's so interesting if you look at those early games of his, uh, they resembled a board game but on a screen. You know, you would see the, right. the entire playfield laid out. It wasn't until later that he started getting the idea of you know I don't need to transplant board games onto the screen i can take advantage of some some elements of computers that aren't available to board games and come up with things like the fog of war for instance yeah yes and as uh, as somebody who was just desperate and i haven't changed in a way but as a 15 year old when i first played uh, rebel star or whatever it the fact that it kind of looked like a tactical view the the graphics obviously were eight bit simplistic, but it had this sort of sense that you were like a commander and you had some kind of view of what was going on. You know, this is before kind of drone cameras and stuff, but the idea that maybe you had some kind of tracking system or device that meant that you were liaising with your your units, uh, and the fact that the graphics weren't you know amazingly realistic or whatever just didn't matter. The atmosphere was in that presentation yeah and and i think that's part of what makes games of that era charming if you look at a game today not only are the graphics uh, either heavily stylized or ultra realistic but you're constantly reminded that you're playing a video game because you have these really lengthy and cloying tutorials um back then i feel like even though the graphics were simpler 
players had an easier time immersing themselves in the experience because they weren't constantly hammered over the head with reminders that they're playing a game. Mm. You can feel like an armchair general. You can feel, you know, almost visualize the, the battlefield beyond the simple sprites and lines. Um, it was kind of, it was almost like your brain was the graphics engine. You were filling That's in right. <laughs> all the many holes that the designers didn't have the resources to fill themselves. So the next studio or company name was Slug, and that was the diversion into <laughs> fantasy with Chaos, which is another, uh, again, not one that I played at the time because uh, I didn't have the machine to run it on. I ended up with this uh, American computer. Wonderful thing in its own right, but it didn't get all the, the British. It got a few of them, but most of the, the kind of the... The 8-bit bedroom coding British stuff didn't make its way over to the Atari, but Chaos has such a, a beloved following, and of course it, it made a return just a few years ago. It did. I actually interviewed Julep before the, uh, Julian before the Kickstarter for that went live, and um, that was a game that was of particular interest to me because you can see another step toward XCOM in that game, as well as it right. being a lot of fun in its own right. You were The battlefield was very simple, but you started to see additions such as a terrain that didn't quite affect your line of sight visually but was an obstacle uh between you and the opposing force and it was also just a really inventive idea for changing world alignment you know light and dark spells and being able to affect things on that scale when you think about it those are concepts that really weren't more heavily explored until we got into more sophisticated computer hardware and consoles, such as the PS2, with uh, morality-heavy games like Bioshock and Infamous and games of that nature. And, you know, Julian Gallup was doing it uh, in the 1980s. Where I came in was, personally, was Rebel Star, which is the... Uh, it was a friend of mine called Mark who had uh, the Amstrad CPC-464, and he would bought this £1.99 budget game, Firebird, and uh, I didn't think that much of it. There were there were loads of great budget games around. Uh, I had plenty myself from Codemasters and Mastertronic and people like that. But this was uh, this was extraordinary. I can't remember the exact circumstances, but Mark sat me down to play this Rebel Star game, and I just instantly fell in love. We spent hours um, playing it as a kind of co-op, you know, local co-op together, kind of working out how best to to deal with this and. The, again, as I say, not only the presentation of it, but also the fact that I immediately felt like responsible for the outcome of these troops. This was, I think this was before you could rename them and stuff like that. Maybe, did they have names at this point? I can't remember. They had simple names, but I, yeah. you're right. I don't believe you could rename them, but you started to care more about them. You know, the more yeah. agency you were given over actions such as uh, equipping them, the more you kind of started to, to care about them and see them not just as game pieces, but as characters. Yeah. And one of the real problems uh, that Julian was starting to, find at this stage obviously the the 8-bit computers were starting to age we we're, we're talking about mid late 80s here mm -hmm. and he was looking to get more sophisticated behavior from particularly from the enemies uh to make the game more interesting emergent and exciting and the programming of the ai and the pathfinding so rebel star raiders was in basic rebel star was in machine code um but I think as we, you know, I was talking about the Amiga version of XCOM there, mm -hmm. uh, it was probably, it, there was a real balance to be struck between having the player, keeping the player sitting there waiting for the, for the enemy to 
take its turn, but also, you know, for the to find that balance where it's still interesting what the enemy's going to do, but you're not just having the player sitting there looking at a blank screen for too long. <laughs> yeah, and that's that brings me back to kind of the, the thesis, the bedrock of the book, where you see Julian, he never wanted to create the same thing twice. He wanted to take his previous work and, and build on it and just add layers of complexity and intricacy to it. And uh, it's just another step toward, toward XCOM, but also I think... Rebel Star, definitely one of his most popular games, especially in the UK. Rebel Star 2, again, I completely missed and I know less about it, but reading in your book, it sounds like uh, this is where the the aliens influence, as so many games were, <laughs> uh, just kind of get covered in it, either visually or, or atmosphere-wise or, or, yeah, just gameplay. And obviously at the same, around the same time, we had Space Hulk from Games Workshop, who he'd worked julian had worked with previously um it was a bit later we got some space hulk games this had uh rebel star 2 had more sort of organic graphics and uh and beyond that i yeah i don't know too much about it it kind of for me it always got kind of forgotten between rebel star and laser squad yeah it was it was the next evolutionary step you know as you said uh geiger's aliens and th those sorts of visuals were just the perfect sort of uh blueprint for people like julian to follow because he already had uh, the intensity and the tension of his gameplay. And then you add in these uh, very familiar iconography and, uh, and silhouettes. And then you have, you know, once you uh, complete your objective, then you have to escape the planet before it explodes. Oh, and, right. Yeah, and that was, that was a really fun thing. Like, you think you're in the clear, you completed the, the game's objective, and then they throw a curveball and said, mm -hmm. actually, you've, you're only halfway there. The next half is going to be the most intense because then now you have to get the heck out of dodge and yeah I, I don't think a lot of players saw that coming it was probably a, a big surprise and very thrilling i would think to discover that oh wow there's actually an objective on top of an objective here that was hidden from me until now yeah yeah and certainly we've seen some of that stuff uh folded back into Firaxis's games Firaxis's Firaxis games <laughs> yes. uh post 2011 um and yeah, so at this point he was uh, Target Games, operating as Target Games. And yes. then uh, around the time of Laser Squad, I can't remember, I can't remember which, I think Target Games was on the on the Laser Squad box, but maybe it was around the same time that he transferred to, to renamed as Mythos Games. Yes, uh, Target Games um, was was short lived. I believe it yeah. was uh, you know founded by a friend of his, and so Julian thought, well, I just want to program games. So if someone else has a as a label already, then great. I'll just kind of assimilate my work into that. And then you know his partner was I don't want to say flaky, but you know maybe yeah. wasn't as invested in this as Julian was, and so uh, that's when Julian's dad and uh, his brother Nick. It was yeah. a fellow programmer came yes. in and um, and uh, completed the transition to Mythos and uh, worked on what started as a Laser Squad 2. I certainly remember we used to call uh, these games Gollop Brothers games uh, <laughs> back at the time. Um, I kind of I, I understood that Julian was kind of, you know, the, the leader of the, the pro project. But but yeah, Julian and, and Nick Gollop, they were they came as a pair at this at this point. They, they did, which is why I wanted to, to talk to Nick. In fact, for a while, uh, you know, I kept asking to talk to, to Nick and Julian said, 
I'll definitely put in a good word for you, but he doesn't do a lot of interviews. And Nick mm-hmm. finally finally surfaced, and that's still the case today. But I was very, very fortunate and very eager to talk with him. And so, I, you know, everyone, what I try to do in every book is talk to as many people as possible in order to paint as clear a picture a possible, as possible, not only of a game's development, but of the, the culture that formed around it through the people who made it. And uh, getting Nick's input there, as well as uh, the input from others at, at Microprose UK, which I'm sure we'll get to, was just invaluable to tell this story. So my friend Mark, the for- aforementioned uh, owner of Rebel Star on, on his Amstrad, uh, came up to me one lunchtime at Sixth Form College, I guess. We were seven, 16, 17 years old and said, uh, how do you fancy coming around after uh college and playing laser squad and i was like oh cool and then i realized what he'd said at first i just thought he'd said rebel star and i was like (laughs) what you've got laser squad and he said yep and he actually he loved rebel star so much he went out and bought laser squad while it was new in a in a in a a cardboard box 10 pounds oh wow um and laser squad actually i struggled with some elements of it gameplay wise which were the fact that it had these uh, limited scenarios and they were it was a bit more puzzleish in that there was kind of a tactical solution to each stage i found it it didn't perhaps allow allow you to be quite so creative strategically as as its predecessor no this was definitely an experimental stage for julian that took a, a different and i think more successful form in xcom you know each scenario had one specific goal that you had That's to right. you know you had some wiggle room in terms of how to approach it but for the most part, the goal was the goal, and there were some strategies that were simply more effective. In XCOM, I think that took the form of the Battlescape mission types, where sometimes you would just want to clear and sweep. Sometimes you were in a terror mission, and you had to kill all the aliens before they executed uh, the the populace of a city. Yeah. And so you you had more control. You could even skip the terror missions. It means you lose a city and maybe lose some funding for the XCOM squad. But if that wasn't your strong point, you could, you know, as you did, maybe manufacture laser pistols and make up the funds elsewhere. So definitely yes. more agency and almost sandbox type gameplay uh, that stemmed yeah, from laser squad scenarios. Yeah. And two gameplay elements that were massive that laser squad brought were the hidden enemy units, a line of sight effectively, and, mm-hmm. fo- uh, you know, fog of war type stuff, but also encumbrance. Yes, and this was, as we mentioned earlier, this is the stage where Julian was kind of breaking away from the board game conventions, which are great for board games, but he was, he was fine. I think he had finally grown enough as a programmer and also just as a creator to say, you know, I can do some some uh some wizardry specific to this platform i can do things that add to the strategy and also the tension of a game it was always pretty i i think it's taken for granted now but to to round a corner to move one tile in any direction around a corner and suddenly see an enemy that you couldn't see before uh could give you a jolt and it was it made the game more exciting even though you still had time to kind of catch your breath you're still in your turn and you could uh, sit back and analyze the situation. Yeah, and one of the things that uh, the XCOM brought that Laser Squad really didn't have very much of at all was audio in that regard to massively heighten, enhance the uh, the sort of survival horror aspect, the creeping dread of space aliens around every corner. Yes, it was that time when in the industry, I think audio was becoming more of a focus on the 
on the PC. It's, it's always really interesting to kind of track the progress of consoles and PC and how in most ways PC kind of led the charge and consoles would always pick up or catch up later. But um, console games, you almost had to have music because most of them were, well, they were derivative of arcade games. And so you needed music to keep you in the in the mood and the moment. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the music in Laser Squad and especially the music in XCOM um, is, is just so iconic for combining with the visuals and the tactical uh, one wrong move in your toast gameplay to really create this, this awesome landscape of, of gameplay. So there was one more sort of step diversion between uh, Laser Squad and XCOM, and that was, was to be Lords of Chaos, the follow-up to Chaos. Mm -hmm. uh, but at this point, Julian suffered, as virtually anyone who was in the games industry for, or, or any kind of <laughs> industry for any length of time, <laughs> uh, got involved. So the, uh, the publisher would have been Blade for this game, um, but it all, went, uh, it all went a bit pear-shaped at this juncture. It sure did. Um, this was pretty common back then. The industry yeah. was so new and you had, it was almost like, um, you know, if you were an operator of a coin-op amusement business and you saw an arcade game, you thought, well, that's popular. I'll order 30 of those. And then mm. you'd go belly up because no one was playing your game or it was, you know, last week's fad. Um, there were a lot of people who saw computer games as this growing lucrative market and they got in and they maybe just weren't prepared to handle it. I think that's something that can still be problematic in games. It's still viewed as a as a wild west industry even there even though there are so many um templates and just kind of guidelines for how to run a business at at any size. Um and you know sometimes those guidelines can be constrictive, other times they can keep you from getting into the situations that Julian did. Not, none of it none of which were his fault. He just kind of kept throwing in with people who didn't know what they were doing and were rather unscrupulous about it. In this case, um, his royalty checks weren't showing up and you right. can't keep, you can't keep making games if you're not getting paid for the games you've already made. Yeah. Happily, he joined forces with the mighty Microprose, uh, as they were then huge, uh, American label, mm -hmm. uh, Wild but major Wild Bill Steely was often seen in in computer game press. This kind of uh, military or air force figure yeah. uh, who'd been involved in actually creating flight sims for home computers, many of which had been big hits. A lot of their American games were huge hits over here uh, in Europe and the UK, but they they had far less history. Uh, Microprose of taking UK developed games and publishing publishing them abroad. So uh, flush with the success of Civ over the previous few years, uh, and I guess this, well, probably I suppose at this point it would have been literally one or two years since Civ came out when, when they were first talking to, to Julian because mm -hmm. XCOM was finished in 94, mm -hmm. uh, and I can't imagine it was tremendously fast. But there was some, some relationship uh, stuff to be kind of thrashed out in terms of what the game Julian was going to make for Microprose. If anything, like he'd always been an ambitious guy, but actually they wanted, uh, they wanted something that could kind of sit on a shelf alongside Civ and not be kind of seen as simplistic. Exactly. So this is where uh, Julian wanting everyone to get credit for helping make XCOM a, su a success comes into play. Yeah. Um, he'd be the first to admit that he was focused on building on his concepts and that did that included more mechanics and tactics it did not 
encompass aspects such as setting and story and and theme except yeah. in the in the most broadest sense so um one of my favorite little uh, side stories in monsters in the dark is the rivalry between microprose uk and microprose us and this is something yeah. i've written a lot about that you, you have the same story in stay a while and listen where blizzard north who are much uh spunkier kind of want to prove themselves with diablo and diablo 2 to blizzard entertainment which is more buttoned up more reliant on structure and process um microprose uk specifically wanted a game a strategy game that not only could sit on shelves but earned a place beside civilization maybe yeah. even selling you know outselling it a bit since you know by the time XCOM came out uh, the first civ was a few years old as you said yes. um and so you know ufo a show that i still haven't watched and i really want to look up some clips on youtube sometime soon it was it was really big and so um also this is why i like to talk to a lot of people julian was was candid with me and saying i think i remember coming up with the alien theme on my own but i know that someone at microprose uk mentioned it who was uh that was pete moreland who oversaw a lot of the development there and i got to talk to pete and and paul hibbert another development manager who unfortunately passed away just a few weeks ago i got to talk to him for that very very fortunate mm. um and you know i talked a lot in the book i wrote about the um the kind of design meetings where they were hashing this stuff out and this was really kind of julian's first brush with a game company that knew what the heck it was doing you know they wanted they wanted storyboards they wanted design documents stuff that yeah. the people in blade software probably never even heard about no disrespect to them but you know you're just seeing the difference in scale here in terms of company size and um I, I kind of agree with Julian asking for a storyboard is a bit of a head scratcher because it's a strategy game. But what they were really after was what do you have in mind in terms of setting and theme? What, what premise can we establish here? And so I feel like both parties learned a lot from the other. They, they knew that they, that, that Julian and Nick as well were the guys to make their, their civ competitor, but they also wanted to, to add the aspects to it that would make it, Civ competitor, that kind of the the icing on the cake, which is pretty important. Yeah. So, do you know if there were were actual sit down or telephone call discussions between specifically between Julian and and Sid Meier? Um, no, I don't believe they even met until oh, okay. a trade show years ago. I think it was either GDC or an E3. But uh, Julian said, if memory serves, uh, Julian said that that's when they met. It was it was years later, and they kind of knew of each other only yeah, by reputation. Course. So All right. Yeah. Yeah. So the what was I guess the game that Julian took to Microprose originally was effectively Laser Squad 2. Mm -hmm. And that would yeah, that would have been great, I'm sure. But it was it was this these uh sort of discussions with what would fit with Microsoft's uh, uh Microprose's, sorry, brand and you know what you could put in a in a big box game on a PC shelf and that would live up to their kind of reputation as you mentioned uh, they brought in the visionary tv creator jerry anderson's ufo show which actually slight predates me slightly um mm -hmm. although i'm aware of it but uh, i'm more familiar with his puppet shows but he made a few live action shows space 1999 and so on uh, there was also a book called uh, alien liaison which is uh, most specifically where the kind of the classic gray aliens got brought in from 
That's correct. And, and one of the big influences um, on, on XCOM at this time, and really on Microprose as a whole, was Steve Hand, uh, a designer at Microprose UK, who I've also had the pleasure of, of talking with extensively. Steve's very candid, which I appreciate, because I, I, as a writer, I like to make sure I can cut through the BS and get to the truth behind these stories. And um, Steve said, you know, I loved Laser Squad, but when Pete Moreland called me into his office to see this tech demo that Mythos had had dropped off i thought it was kind of a mess but of course it was a demo so it's allowed to be a mess but he um you know julian wanted to create the aliens on his own at first he wanted to do the art because again as, as a, yeah. someone from a smaller shop that's just what you did you wore all the hats but steve said nope a lot of these designs are very derivative some are just straight up bad uh, we're gonna find we're gonna put one of our artists on it and so you kind of had a mix you had the now classic gray man uh, but you also had a lot of the more unique, such as the the giant snake monster yes. uh, and, and other monsters that came from uh, one of Microprose UK's uh, best artists. Yeah, you've got these kind of almost manga anime style little cameos and things like that, which were <laughs> really striking at the time. And again, uh, what I was pleased about playing XCOM or UFO, as I knew it back then, Enemy Unknown, was that although it obviously had kind of lost that thing that I was talking about earlier from the Rebel Star days of look, just looking like a strategic military kind of tactical view, obviously these were graphics that were attempting to replicate an actual space with, with people in it. But even though the graphics were pretty you know chunky and blocky and basic, those little vignettes kind of brought it sparking into life. Yeah, and they, they added a lot. I think that's where, again, Julian admits he still had a lot of learning to do. He kind of saw the benefit of working with a big studio who could, you know, all the little vignettes, all the character designs, they contribute to the world and make those monsters, those, those aliens, all the more intimidating. When you eventually round a corner on the battlefield or step into a UFO or a little uh, convenience store and there they are, there's one of them waiting for you. Yeah. Um, and so it was really this... This perfect confluence. You had uh, Julian and Nick's um, savvy at programming and game design. Uh, Julian especially, and Nick would be the first to say so. And then Micropose uh, has this greater understanding of what can we really add to this to make it really stand out and make it something extra special. So the I guess a bunch of the features that XCOM kind of brought in that really made it so demanding on my poor old Amiga, uh, <laughs> but worked so well on a PC and a PlayStation and 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 yeah whatever else you can play it on now. Um, <laughs> we went from these kind of you know two D uh, almost blueprint looking levels to procedurally generated multi level isometric three D terrain with a day night cycle. I mean, that was massive. Yeah, it was absolutely huge and again added to that atmosphere of, of growing dread because you knew that if you shot down a UFO at night or if uh, a terror mission sprung up at night, which they had a tendency to do, you could part of you wanted to kind of leave the people there to fend for themselves because that game was so much <laughs> scarier at night. You yeah. know, your, your vision was cut by a third. Each, each unit's vision was reduced by a third, but the aliens could still see, I believe yeah. it was 15, 20 tiles in, uh, you know, in their line of sight. And it was just, it added this extra layer of tension to the games and literal layers too. I mean, the fact that your units could, could crouch, they could lob grenades through, through windows. It, goes back to what we we were talking about earlier regarding immersion the fact that you know the game had this verisimilitude that 
you could look at a window, eye the hand grenade in a unit's hand, and toss it through there without stopping to think, oh, I can't do this in a video game. It's just kind of natural. If you see a window, you want to throw something through it. Um, and it really added uh, this additional layer of intricacy to XCOM. And I suppose if there's one aspect of all, pretty much all Julian's games that is divisive, people still talk about it. It's almost kind of meme worthy at this point. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of a real love it or hate it thing. But <laughs> as much as this game is deep and strategic, uh, and this goes for the Firaxis reboot as well, the RNG element. So the famous <laughs> scenario is you are one tile away from an alien. You have a shotgun in your hand. You have a 95% chance of shooting the alien in the face and you miss. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think like without that, I know, uh, particularly in the original, the old XCOM, the shots that you, so in for Axis's game, they'll always just narrowly miss, right? Pretty much uh, mm -hmm. for drama's sake. In the old original XCOM, if a if a soldier was panicking or or just got the the the, the internal dice roll went wrong, you could fire at almost like a forty five degree angle away from where you're supposed to be shooting, <laughs> and it was infuriating. But it again, it it didn't it never drove me away. It was just part of the the kind of the fun. I don't know why. Like I think I understand why Firaxis changed it because. I think modern players just maybe the, the amount of whinging I see online about those 95% shots. But do you think, I don't know, <laughs> did Julian say anything about that as a designer or? We did talk about that. In fact, this is something I've, I've raised with other developers in some of my other books. Um, when I spoke with um, Obsidian Entertainment's Josh Sawyer about Pillars of Eternity, mm. he said, I, I asked him, I said, what do you feel is one of the most complicated game systems to teach players within the construct of the game. And he said, I, I, I'm probably going to mangle his quote here. I don't have it in front of me, but to paraphrase, it was, it was basically accuracy and the odds of success. You know, just because you have a 95% chance doesn't mean you have a 100% chance. There's still, that, there's still that window of error. And so the player feels cheated if they miss. And that is really what designers want to focus on. It might explain for Axis's changes. They don't want, you know, the more often you as the player feel cheated, the, the less likely you may come back to the game. Um, and I think that it's also something that, you know, I find it frustrating too, but I'm also, maybe it's just because I'm a creative person as well. And as a writer, I, I look for ways to kind of tie it into the narrative. You know, when I play first yeah. person shooters like Doom, when I played Doom as a kid, uh, Doom, I thought was very scary. The first one in particular. Oh, yeah. I remember running down dark corridors. So there was one room in episode two where it was kind of a maze of pillars, uh, very claustrophobic, and there was a light um, fading in and out. And I remember rounding a corner, the light was on, no one in front of me. I inched forward, the room went dark. I heard a growl, and then when the light came back on, there was an imp in front of me. I screamed, and I kind of went wild on the keyboard. I shot. I mean, my, my shotgun was just, you know, piercing his chest. But I went a little wild with the keyboard keys and I missed. It might be something like that. If you think about the fact yeah. that yeah. XCOM, XCOM squads can panic. So, yeah. yes, they're right up there. They have a 94% accuracy chance, but maybe they panic. You just don't see it play out on screen. But right. maybe that's what happens in your mind. Maybe that's everything in games is representative. You know, in RPGs, if, if you kill a rat and it drops a suit of armor, it, it wasn't really carrying that suit of armor. <laughs> you know, it, that's representative. Mm -hmm. it's, it's part of the gameplay loop that is... 
somewhat removed from the verisimilitude of the experience, I would say. I always imagine the rat having been wearing the suit of armor. <laughs> or carrying the health potions, yeah. which it really should have used, it turns out. But yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I I completely agree with you, and uh, uh, yeah, I think that is is the way I've always kind of uh, justified it in my mind. Sure. Uh, so there was a game came out in again a UK developed game in 1993 by Sensible Software called Cannon Fodder, and that was a game <laughs> where you started off with a little. It was real time uh, rather than turn based, but it was kind of a strategy game with shooting elements, but. Mm -hmm. The key thing about it was the longer you kept your soldiers alive, the better they became. Uh, so talking about using soldier, soldiers as cannon fodder in XCOM, now you could name your soldiers and people still do this in the, in the Firaxis games <laughs> to this day. It makes it so much more uh, uh, emotionally potent having, uh, having that connection with them. Um, but you still need to you got to be utterly brutally callous about uh, <laughs> about hiring rookies who are cheap and don't you know don't necessarily you haven't invested in them emotionally or financially they they go out the dropship first <laughs> yeah and one of the aspects of that i find the most interesting uh, there oh there's there's just so much to this this is why i love xcom and love writing totally. about it even yeah. more um, it kind of makes you, again, because I'm someone who unfortunately thinks far too deeply about these things, it kind of makes me wonder if in real life any of these green soldiers were treated the same way I can treat my my units in games like XCOM and StarCraft. You know, you're yeah. the cannon you're the cannon fodder. And it's brutal to think about, but these might be some of the rules of, of war. And um the other thing is that uh, I love going back to representation of, of game systems. I love that in XCOM you you leveled up, so to speak, by uh, gaining confidence on the battlefield, and your squad would kind of look to you when the less experienced fighters became panicked. And it's just something that fascinates me. Such as in the Legend of Zelda, you don't level up, but every heart container represents your growing strength and your knowledge and your confidence. Um, and I think XCOM was one of the, the earliest games to kind of do a, a great job at representing that visually and in, and in terms of the, the gameplay, showing that, hey, you know, you don't have, you don't see anything like 9,000 XP to the next level, but your high ranking soldier, whom you're very proud of and you're emotionally invested in, is kind of taking charge of the battlefield, keeping all the other fighters in line on your behalf. And it's, it's psychologically fascinating to me. And we've talked a lot, obviously, about the the basic gameplay because it, it evolved from Rebel Star through Laser Squad into XCOM, the, the on-field, the battles. But XCOM added an insane amount of depth and engagement and, and immersion by adding an entire kind of base management, world management. Uh, you've got this, you know, the interceptions. <laughs> you've got ships that you need to buy and arm and fuel. You've got to manage funding. You've got to do research. All this stuff, it just felt so vast and the possibilities were, were and, and all these hooks, like all this stuff was pretty much with with quality of life changes. They pretty much just put it wholesale into the 2011 reboot. They did. And I think this is the game where Julian earned his his medal as one of the pioneers of 4X. I yeah. mean, when you when you think about it, XCOM is 
essentially two games in one. You have the Geoscape where you yes. handle base building, resource management, convincing countries to give you funding, manufacturing weapons to either use or sell. And then you have the Battlescape, you know, the actual tactical missions, you versus uh, the aliens and your environment, which they can use to their advantage as ably as, as you can. Um, and yeah, it was just this, it was so, it was so engrossing. And I'm sure there are people out there uh, I'm not one of them, but uh, people out there who enjoyed the geoscape portion more than they did, you know, getting their hands dirty on the on on the battlefield and the battlescape. Yeah, uh, it's kind of I, I I wouldn't like to choose. I think they're they're, it's they're tough. so it's symbiotic tough. that. Yeah, um, I mean, you look at another game like Actraiser, the original. I yes. I loved the the city development portion of that more yeah. than the side scrolling. Yeah, and then Actraiser yeah. two, they cut the city yeah. building, and I thought, well, this is just another scrolling yes. beat 'em up now, and it wasn't as uh, entrancing to me. Still consider that an error. Uh, oh, their, huge, <laughs> huge, yeah. So uh, post XCOM, obviously the the we've mentioned Terror from the Deep, which I'm not sure how much Julian himself had to do with that because the game was kind of already there, um, and it was it really felt like a an expansion pack sold as a full price sequel. Yeah, zero input actually. I um, thought it might be the case. <laughs> yes. So so what happened was um, Microprose understandably waited to see what XCOM was going to do in terms of sales. It became arguably an even bigger success in the West, uh, in the States specifically, than it did yeah. in, the, in the UK. Yeah. And so Microprose got a hold of Mythos and said, we want a sequel in six months. And Julian right. said, can't do it because yeah. I'd have to just reskin XCOM and I don't want to do that again. This is, you know, this is the, the, uh, the growth of Julian Gullup that I chart throughout Monsters in the Dark is I don't just want to do the same thing with a different look. And they said, well, okay, how about you work on another XCOM game? We'll release it when it's done, but would you license us uh, the engine and everything else? And, and Julian said, sure. And so, you know, even the, the, the Terror from the Deep team, um, it took them a year, and it was largely derivative, which is not necessarily a knock. I think a change of setting was enough, but I don't think this franchise could have continued in that direction. I think people no. would have soured on it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's just a lot more interesting stories there. So three years passed uh, after XCOM, a couple of years after uh, Terror from the Deep, and this is the game that I've never put any time into, and I feel really bad about that. It came out in 1997, XCOM Apocalypse. I remember it got a 9 out of 10 review in Edge, and I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is the new <laughs> XCOM. It's by Julian Gollop. I don't have a PC. Maybe it will come out on a console. Of course it didn't. It was way too kind of pc heavy mm -hmm. for that i eventually got hold of a copy years later and and just you know just didn't quite have the <laughs> the appetite for it but it it doesn't seem to have the I, i'm not sure if there's any elements of apocalypse have made it into the the reboots or or any of the subsequent games it was a bit of an outlier uh yeah that's that's correct and and julian would agree with that and does um there's a bonus interview that i'm publishing with julian and perhaps one other developer who's still um, considering it, we're still talking, but um, the development of XCOM Apocalypse was wrought with technical problems, uh, management problems, and politics, a lot of which I can't go into because the, the, the possibility yeah. of lawsuits are, are that strong. <laughs> wow. But um, Julian, you know, I... I think it's it's true for creators that when when they look at their work, even if other people love it, we we only see the warts. Um, 
And Julian just, he said, he said, you know, I was pleased when Edge gave it a nine out of 10, but I just, all I could see were the problems. It was mm. too ambitious. We weren't able to get some things done because we were so, um, you know, over schedule and over budget. And so it, it really is the odd duck out. And I think you could probably point to it as starting the, the downward trend of the XCOM franchise until the reboots in 2012. So there was one more uh, visit to the uh, the sort of the chaos style well with Magic and Mayhem as the last uh, com- the mm-hmm. last completed and published Mythos game. Uh, Bethesda actually published that in America. Um, now the next one I had some engagement with, and I don't know how much. Again, you talked to Julian about this one, but I thought this was super cool. And again, I had a, a different friend called Pete who was well into Laser Squad Nemesis. So there was a there was an XCOM email game which I remember which wasn't Julian Gollop uh, authored, but Laser Squad Nemesis was uh, now operating. They were now operating under Kodo Technologies. This was effectively an asynchronous turn based multiplayer um, game in this kind of series, and it was I th- it was really cool, and I think it did probably quite well. That is one I didn't talk to Julian about, but want to. Um, th- so this book was originally become to become another series like stay well and listen but the more i thought about it the more i wanted to concentrate just on the first XCOM and julian's career up until then because i wasn't sure there were so many games in XCOM that he did not author that i thought you know yeah. i would stray too far from my my core developer the subject of the book um but i i would eventually like to tackle that email game because i think that that's it's something that's still popular among grognards you know among turn-based strategy games i mean right. even uh, yeah. civ 4 had yeah. had pit boss where you could play with friends over email and it's such a cool idea you it know is. if you don't yeah. always especially as you get older right like as you, you don't Absolutely. have as much time to sit down and play games i wish more maybe, games did it yeah yeah I, I do too in fact i think email only games would be the the perfect <laughs> kind of mixture of of, of uh text adventures and turn-based strategy that yeah. could really could really take off. You know, maybe you're, after you put the kids to bed, you sit down you with your phone and do your turn and see what happens next in the next chapter or what have you. I think totally. it would be a lot of fun today, too. Yeah, it works with things like, you know, words with friends, Scrabble type stuff. So right, why not right. with, with, with space aliens and shooting space marines? <laughs> exactly. Uh, there were a couple more uh, products. Again, one more with Kodo, which was uh, one I did play, which was a kind of uh, chibi, cut-down uh, Rebel Star game for for uh, Game Boy Advance called Tactical Command, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't flawless. It had a few little glitches and bugs and and issues, but overall, it was it was very cute. Yeah, it's that's a game I didn't talk to Julian about, but I'm familiar with and would like to see come back. Yeah. Um, I think there's a market for it. I, I kind of missed games like that and like Advance War. I think there's a huge hole in the market for, for that type of game. Yeah. Especially, I mean, if you look at the platform, like why isn't something like that on Switch? It yeah. would do brilliantly there. We were talking about this on our very uh, most recent Sound of Play podcast with uh, Rich from, from the team and I talking about um, nothing, absolutely nothing against Fire Emblem at all. I like Fire Emblem very much. Yes. It, it does tick <laughs> tick similar boxes, but Intelligent yes. Systems and Nintendo seem to have abandoned Advance Wars, which would just, yeah. When And when I heard they were bringing out mobile Fire Emblem, I was thinking some kind of exactly what we were just talking about, asynchronous turn-based <laughs> would have been so cool, but didn't happen. Uh, and the other game that, uh, so... Uh, I, I guess I don't know if it's odd or not, but Julian ended up working with Ubisoft in Sofia. Uh, moved to Bulgaria, where he's still based, I think. 
that right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did worked on a chess game, a kind of going full circle in <laughs> going some full ways. circle. Yeah. 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 Uh, but then Ghost Recon, he worked on a Tom Clancy game, and it's very much, you, you can absolutely, it was a, a 3DS launch game, I believe, or certainly very close to. And um, it's kind of a bit of a hidden gem on that system that I think people might ignore based, if they're not into the Tom Clancy military stuff, they might ignore it. Um, if they're not into, and, and yeah, if, if, if they, they might be into Julian Gollop's games, but they might not know what it is. Yeah, that's, you know, just to speaking to the the turn-based strategy genre uh in particular you know that game came out before well before two factors um the launch of the xcom reboot which which not only made xcom kind of a household name yeah. among pc and console players but got people talking about julian gollop's influence again yeah but also the age of of kickstarter i feel like that's a tough franchise then unless you have a big label or license such as tom clancy attached to it you'd have a hard time selling but as julian gollop himself has proven if you go to kickstarter and set your budget appropriately there are uh, thousands of players out there who love that sort of thing probably know they'll never get it from a AAA studio unless it's Tom Clancy or you know I, th I feel like Tom Clancy turn-based strategy or not turn-based strategy but strategy and tactics games are kind of the call of duty uh, <laughs> of, of its genre yeah. um, you know if you go to Kickstarter I think that's where you can find a, a market and people willing to to give you money toward making a game that they really want to play and might not be able to find anywhere else so Firaxis, uh, Sid Meier's people, effectively, mm -hmm. uh, rebooted XCOM very successfully in 2011. Uh, it's since had a big expansion, a sequel, which has also had a big expansion, and now another kind of spin-off expansion. Uh, people love it generally uh, with, you know, as always, there's always uh, criticism. What's, mm -hmm. What does Julian think of it? I think his, he's sort of said he would have taken a different approach, but he actually thinks they took the right approach. He does. That's right. Um, he's got to so sit down with the uh, with the lead designer on that a number of times. And I think the interesting thing there, a, a lot of people, especially depending on how media outlets phrase the headline, might uh, infer from that that there's some some beef between Julian and mm. Firaxis and the development mm. team. But really, I think if you ask any creator about something they started and that someone else is oh. continuing, they'll always say, well, I would have done something different. Not necessarily better, but obviously I have a different vision for this thing. Yes. Um, and so I think that, that Julian sent the right message that, well, it's not what I would have done, but I think you made the right choice. Um, uh, Julian, again, is, is very humble. He even said to me that he considers... To this day, um, XCOM, the original, to be the best game of his career. And even joke that some, day, some days he feels like he's been going downhill ever since. But <laughs> yeah. he also, he's someone who loves to experiment. And I think that obviously failures impact him. But if he can get an idea, if he can find the diamond in the rough, um, as he did with, with XCOM Apocalypse, he can kind of experiment with that later on and find something different. Yeah, I mean, the amount of great directors or authors or musicians whose best work came like at that point of their career or earlier sometimes it's just it you know there's just you can't help it just enjoy it and embrace it if 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 if, it, if you've come out with something that's that well loved and that popular then <laughs> just just enjoy that you know don't worry about trying to top it it doesn't matter you still made that thing yeah and, and you're still working moment. which is nice yeah. you know, it, Stephen King likes to joke that when I ask readers what their favorite book of mine is a lot of them them say carry or it he's like i wrote those almost 50 years ago yeah. but at least i'm still a bestseller so there's that yeah you know so 
So um, he did, uh, as we said, he rebooted uh, Chaos. Oh, I guess he got, I, I guess, uh, working on the Vita port of Assassin's Creed 3, uh, finished him off within the studio system. I don't know that. Maybe that's unfair. But he obviously <laughs> had a hankering to go back to doing less AAA, you know, studio work. Uh, rebooted with uh, with crowdfunding, Chaos Reborn, which I think did well. Uh, I get the impression, based on the number of people I know who have it on Steam, that it, it that it it did well enough for him. More recently, and again, I can't really other. I can't, I've got no excuses for not having played this. It's on Game Pass. Um, <laughs> the reviews have been mixed, but Phoenix Point is effectively the next Julian Gollop game in that line of games like he doesn't have the name the XCOM name anymore but it's absolutely from that same creative brain it is it is and I'm I'm a bit ashamed to say I haven't gotten to play it either and I had Game Pass until just recently I decided you know I don't even have time to use this I'm yeah. not going to keep yeah. giving Microsoft $40 every three months but it's definitely on my list of games to play when I get it back because I feel like uh, you know, in some in some ways, I don't know that the next Julian Gallup game, and there will always be a, a next Julian Gallup game, could ever quite live up to the the hype that people put on it. Because, um, as Julian would say, you know, XCOM wasn't perfect either. A lot of people look back on it with rose tinted glasses. It's great, but it had some flaws sure. in a way, such as the difficulty level bug that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, he's just, I'm just glad he's still creating and still experimenting because really, I, I, I still believe that to this day, Sid Meier and Julian Gallup are still the two uh, most common names in the turn-based strategy space. Yeah, for sure. One last game I wanted to mention. I have no idea if you know it or have played it or whether Julian does, but I'm really interested. I'm not sure what the creative genesis was, whether it was going to happen before the Firaxis reboot was announced, but Xenonauts is a really interesting game because Goldhawk Interactive were obviously uh, massive fans of XCOM. And at the point, I guess, when they started making this, it came out eventually in 2014. I think it was doing the rounds for years before that. Uh, so I suspect it was in development from before the Firaxis reboot was even announced. But this was the kind of this was the the kind of unofficial remake like this was really close to XCOM uh, with a few quality of life changes but really this was designed to scratch the itch on modern PCs that people hadn't been able to scratch since 1995 or whatever uh does he know it does he like it I'm not sure about that I'm familiar with it and I yeah. know it has its fans but there's still a lot of people very vocal saying well this is an XCOM and yeah. they kind of got you know a, a closer approximation with the reboot but um, I think the next time I, I speak with him I do want to talk to him about a lot of the games that he influenced whether yeah. he knows it or not because I think that um, Julian's the sort of designer who would be very interested to see how that influence started and how they built on on what he had done before the foundation that he laid so we've kind of had a whistle-stop tour there of uh, Julian's <laughs> career and games, but obviously the book goes into way more detail and uh, has a lot more anecdotes uh, and uh, insight from the man himself. So I guess the next question is when, where, and how can people get hold of Monsters in the Dark? Sure. So by the time uh, that your audience listens to this, Monsters in the Dark should be on a Kickstarter. 
And the book is actually already finished. I, I went to crowdfunding, as I did with Stay Wild and Listen 2, just to help with the final round of editing and printing and distribution. Um, so the Kickstarter will be running until uh, early to mid-April. And as soon as the campaign finishes, and, uh, you know, knock on wood, as soon as the, the funding is, is met, and, well, once the campaign finishes, the funding transfers to me, and then I will immediately distribute the digital book to all backers who right. supported it and then within the next couple of months um they will start receiving paperbacks delightful uh very good stuff uh people can also find you on twitter correct i am at david l craddock on twitter and i just announced recently that i've signed um, a contract with a publisher to write the uh, history of the Mortal Kombat franchise, which is oh yes, uh, yes, very near and dear to me. In fact, I'm I'm sitting here on my screen looking at uh, an email from uh, someone at Nether Realm. So uh, already getting the ball rolling on that. That will be out in 2022 to coincide with the uh, Mortal Kombat franchise's um, 30th 30th anniversary. So I think that's what you 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 already know this about me, but I, I like to write about this, that, and the other. So yeah. you've got XCOM, you've got Diablo, you've got Mortal Kombat coming, arcade to home conversions. Uh, always always got something cooking, and I just I love it. I still can't believe this is my job. Most yeah, days. <laughs> uh, I can't either. No, it sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> do listen to our Mortal Kombat trilogy podcast. We covered the first three games. Uh, you know, I'm sure you'll find out everything about it and more. But uh, if you know, if you fancy sticking that on for a bit of extra research. I do, yes. Uh, we did that some time ago. Uh, we didn't get as far as all the, the many, many, many 3D games. Is your is your book going to go through, is the genesis of the original, or is it going to go through the series? <laughs> I um, It's going to go through the series as far as I can. I yeah. pitched the publisher um, a history through the most recent Mortal Kombat 11, but I I think I was making that up. I don't, I don't know that I'll get that far with at least <laughs> one lot. Um, we'll see. We'll see. But I, I also want to... One to 11. Yeah, yeah. One through 11. There there you go. There's a good series. Keep right you there. busy. It's, it's like I'm a fantasy author or something. 11 volumes, minimum. Plus the films. Um, plus the films. Three plus films, the TV, TV adaptations. <laughs> talking with HBO. It's going great. I'm excited about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I uh, what I want to do, as I do with all my books, I like to talk about the people. So every other chapter, as of right now in the Mortal Kombat book, every other chapter will focus on the development and design of one of the games. Yeah. And then I'll also look at something related to pop culture. I've, I've been um, emailing and talking with some psychologists and philosophers about uh, their respective fields and how it kind of um, correlates to video games, violent games, Mortal Kombat. So yes. I think, and, and members of the, the, the esports, you know, pro player community, um, so, yeah, this will be a pretty interesting book as well. Awesome. Well, please come back. Let us know when you're ready to talk about it. I absolutely we'll will. Do absolutely. it all over again. 